we instructed the property manager that when that tenancy lease is about to be renewed, they should raise the rent to bring it up to speed with the other two units. What we didn't know at the time, because this was our first investment here, is that Japan being Japan and the economy being in deflationary mode for the 25 or so years prior to that purchase, you don't raise rents <laughs> in Japan. You just don't do that. Hello, fellow risk takers, and welcome to my worst investment ever. Stories of loss to keep you winning. In our community, we know that to win in investing, you must take risk, but to win big, you've got to reduce it. Today's episode is sponsored by the Valuation Masterclass Online, the complete proven step-by-step -step online course to guide you from novice to valuation expert. Podcast listeners can claim your amazing 35% discount by going to myworstinvestmentever.com slash deals. My name is Andrew Stotts from A. Stotts Investment Research, and I'm here with featured guest Ziv Nakajima Magan. Ziv, are you ready to rock? Yes, yes, definitely am. Let's do it. So Ziv was born in Israel, migrated first to Australia, then finally to Japan, where he and his wife run a buyer's agency and portfolio management company helping foreigners invest in Japanese property and manage their investments. Ziv, take a minute and fill in any further tidbits about your life. Okay, so about what you've said, I mean, I've moved out of Israel in my late 20s, migrated to Australia, which is, I guess, the stark opposite of Israel, which is what I was looking for. So, you know, peaceful in nature and really just financially war, security, stress-free place. And I loved it, uh, at least in my late 20s. And then I sort of married into Japan a few years after that. So I met my wife who was Japanese in Australia, started coming and going to Japan. And then when our son was born, we sort of wanted to just strengthen his Japanese connection a little bit. And we thought the best way we'd do that to just throw him into the deep end sort of thing. And so we moved here. We've been here for about eight years now. Mm hmm. And it's just kind of interesting for, when I first went to Japan, it was 1989. And I would say it was pretty vibrant. You know, Japanese companies were winning the day and all of that. But, and then I became an equity analyst in 1993. And at that time, Japan had just kind of gone through the peak of the property bubble and the stock market bubble and then was moving into a declining phase. If you were to compare that Japan 20 years ago, 30 years ago, to today, I'd imagine it's a much different place, particularly the demographics. I'm just wondering if someone was in Japan right now, what are some of the things that you've seen that demonstrate the demographic challenges that Japan is facing? Well, I guess um, on the one hand, you're right. It definitely, Japan went through the doldrums from you know the early 90s to just about 2000 and late 2012, it kind of bottomed out. But the thing is about Japan is that you wouldn't notice it. Like in other countries, if a country goes through depression, you know, there's bank runs and people are finding it hard to make ends meet and the consumer market takes a hit. And here, it's sort of business as usual in a way. And some of it is macroeconomics. I mean, the debt that Japan has is pretty uh, insulated. It's mostly domestic debt. And People don't tend to vocally, at least, you know, speak out against the government or call for revolutions or any of that sort of thing. So it's still a very vibrant society. It's still a very much a consumer's market. People love shopping. They love going out. 
I guess you feel it most when you travel out of Japan and then come back. I mean, the uh, cost of living is pretty much half here between the early 90s to early 2000s. Mm-hmm. Whereas a lot of people still have that image, like your 1989 image, the image of you know, Tokyo being one of the most expensive cities in the world and Japan being one of the most expensive countries in the world. If you step out, you suddenly notice that it's completely not the case. I mean, food, rent, daily commodities, everything is a lot cheaper here than it is in many other countries around the world. Yeah, I recall the last time I was in Japan, maybe two years ago, just a bowl of delicious noodles or ramen or other things was just such so reasonably priced. In fact, it wasn't that much more expensive than what you'd find here in Thailand. So that was pretty remarkable. Yeah, Thailand's been doing very well, actually, in the last few years, hasn't it? It's definitely been strong. I mean, we're getting hit right now with the fall in tourism from the coronavirus. But generally, Thailand has been pretty stable. That's for sure. I like to go there uh, once a year, and I've noticed that in my pocket. Yeah. (laughs) All right. Well, now it's time to share your worst investment ever. And since no one goes into their worst investment thinking it will be, tell us a bit about the circumstances leading up to it, and then tell us your story. Okay, so this would be one of our first Japanese property investments. So we entered this market. At that time, we weren't providing services to anyone. This was just our own personal investments that we wanted to get into. And we had some experience with real estate property investment in Australia. And I've been very active in speaking with people all over the world, mainly in English at that point in time. I wasn't actually speaking, reading, or writing Japanese at all and relied on my wife for all Japanese-related interactions. But I, I felt quite confident that I know what property investment is all about and how to price rents and what's a good property and a bad property and locations and so forth. So we sort of came in looking for the best possible deal that we could find. Now, Japan, not being really a capital growth oriented place, or at least it hasn't been for 25 odd years, now it's sort of coming back to that. You mostly look for cash flow investments around here. So we looked for the highest rental income that we could find in areas that we were comfortable with. And we found a a sort of bulk purchase of three condo units in one city, in Kitakish City, which is not too far from Fukuoka where we live. They came at a discounted price because the seller wanted to get rid of all three of them and was happy to discount the price if it was all to the same buyer. And tenants have been in place, I think, five years, eight years, and 15 years, so quite comfortable tenancy-wise. And return was through the roof. I mean, it was, at the time, 15 or 16% net pre-tax, so Mm. really, really attractive yields. And we just bought all three of them, and we started collecting the rent from day one, and everything seemed hunky-dory, as they say, and it was great. And I think... The first thing that I wanted to do, we came in, you know, all guns blazing. We know what we're doing. We've been, we've been in the property market for a while now. We know all about globalization and, you know, we've got three, four languages between us. And so the first thing we looked at is, okay, we sat down with the tenancy leases and we compared the rents that were payable in each and every one of those units. And we noticed that one of the units had slightly lower rent than the others. We're talking about something like 20 or $30 a month. So nothing Mm -hmm. consequential. But it seemed like the units were all on the same layout, same size. And for us at that point in time, we saw that the lease was about to end 
the tenancy lease was about to end or needs to be renewed on that property that seemed to be getting slightly lower rent. And we're talking something like 14% as opposed to 15 and a half. So mm. really nothing big, but me, you know, being an Excel sheet kind of guy, I'm like, well, it just doesn't look good. There's no reason for that one not to be making that same amount of rent. And we're only talking about $20 or so a month extra. So we instructed the property manager that when that tenancy lease is about to be renewed, they should raise the rent to bring it up to speed with the other two units. What we didn't know at the time, because this was our first investment here, is that Japan being Japan and the economy being in deflationary mode for the 25 or so years prior to that purchase, you don't raise rents <laughs> in Japan. You just don't do that. And the other thing, I mean, tenants would be paying the same rent that they paid when they moved into the property, say, five or eight or 10 or even 20 years ago. And they wouldn't ask you to reduce the rent when the contract is renewed, just because for them, any sort of negotiation is considered and feels like a conflict. So Japanese tend to avoid conflict at any cost. So the tenants would never ask for the landlord to reduce the rent. But on the other hand, the landlord would never ask for the rent to be raised when the lease is renewed, and definitely not if salaries and cost of living and everything hasn't been going up as well. Mm. But we didn't know that at the time. What we also new in theory, but didn't actually realize in practice is that Japanese professionals are also not very confrontational. So your property manager or your real estate agent or your insurance agent, if they think that you're making a mistake, they wouldn't come right out and say, no, don't do that. Mm. They would maybe make a sort of a vague comment or ask you if you're sure that that's the course of action that you want to take or they wouldn't even say that that's not a good idea or anything of that sort. So when we instructed the property manager to do that, he sort of asked us, are you sure that might not be the best idea? I wouldn't recommend it. And we said, no, we know what you're doing. Just tell him that and raise the rent. It's only $20, not a big deal. What happened was is that the tenant just promptly moved out, right? So they did not renew the lease. What they ended up doing was probably move to another vacant unit in the very same building that was at that time renting for about half the rent. Mm. And we stayed with a vacant unit. And the second thing we learned straight after that is that Japanese property managers are professional and polite. All professionals here are professional and polite. They wouldn't swindle you or cheat you or go out of business and take your cash with them or any of that sort of thing. But that doesn't necessarily mean that they're not salesmen or that they're going to give you complete and full disclosure and give you the best professional advice because they are at the end of the day salesmen and they want to sell. And what we found out is that the city in which we purchased those units, Kitakyushu, is actually not the best probably spot to pick for a beginner investor like ourselves. It's a very blue-collar town. There are a lot of new developments coming up there that are being priced rental-wise at a very similar price to the older developments. So tenants have a lot more options. And the population there, while not in sharp decline, is just about stable or slightly dropping. So it's not the best profile city in the world to invest in. Mm. And we ended up with a vacancy that took us, I think from memory, about a year and a half to fill again, which was quite painful. At that time, that was 33%, like a third of our income stream. So that was quite a hit for our investment income stream. So that was quite a financial hit for us as well. We ended up populating it at a much lower rent amount and then just sold it at, I think, 
about 20 or 30% loss compared to when we bought it. So yeah, that was uh, quite painful, but uh, good lessons <laughs> learned. <laughs> well, what were the lessons that you learned from this? I think we talk about a lot about due diligence, right? And due diligence does tend to be, in our minds, due diligence tends to be a very practical sort of numbers related matter. So we look at income streams, we look at risk factors in the sense that, you know, something might suddenly, there might be an unexpected expense down the road or things could be going better or not as good in particular locations. But we don't really think about cultural and emotional differences when we're dealing in another country. So yes, the numbers probably apply the same anywhere you go, but there are a lot of other factors that you need to take into account and relying on your knowledge that was gained in another location when you've been investing in your backyard might be not really applicable, might be stark opposite of the place that you're going into next. So I guess due diligence also should include learning about the professionals that you're dealing with and learning to trust their advice and trying to um, read between the lines when they say something or trying to gauge what it is that they might be trying to say to you but are maybe avoiding for various reasons. Mm. I guess listen more would be the most important thing. Yep. Got it. Well, here's some of the things I take away. I mean, the first, there's a great saying in in English, we say, let sleeping dogs lie. Like, don't poke at a dog that's comfortably sleeping or you could get bitten. Absolutely. So that's kind of the, the first one. I think the other thing about for newbies in the area of property, particularly rental, they oftentimes forget about the damage that can be done by having you know, downtime in between tenants. And that can destroy what looks like a beautiful yield. It also reminds me, a third thing is, you know, we have to be very careful as kind of, as you said, Excel experts and, you know, that type of person that's a numbers-based person. My great teachers, Dr. Deming, taught us that really the, the most important, you know, the most important things oftentimes in business are unknown and unknowable or maybe unmeasurable. And so sometimes we think we can measure it in a spreadsheet, but the human nature of the actual outcome of what we think is the right decision can be very, you know, very different. And then the third thing is, I think in Asia, one thing I've learned is if you get a little bit of resistance, stop and listen, as you said, whereas in the West, if we get some resistance, you know, part of what we want to do is get tough and push through it and all that. It's a challenge. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But in Asia, because you're never going to get the same amount of resistance you would get, let's say, in the West, a tiny amount of resistance is a signal that we have to be much more attuned to and stop pushing something through and ask the question, okay, why am I getting this little bit of resistance? And I think that probably one of the biggest mistakes that people make coming to Asia from the West is that they push through and think, you know, let's get this done. And that can be a huge mistake. So those are some of the things I take away. Anything you would add to that? Absolutely. I mean, everything you've said is is spot on. And we've since obviously learned that. And these days when we provide the same sort of service for our customer, this was eight years ago now, these are exactly the things that we look at. So we try to let people know that when somebody, a professional that you're working with is telling you uh, that could be a little bit difficult, that should throw out all the possible red flags 
just a little bit difficult is not an invitation to a dance. It doesn't mean that, okay, let's, let's do this. It's quite the opposite of that. I mean, if you were anywhere else in the world, then there would be a lot of resistance coming in at this point. So you really want to stop and listen and try to understand what that person is trying to say to you. Yeah, it's, I can uh, think about when they say that little, little warning it's like a screaming, flashing red light. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So based on what you've learned from this story and what you continue to learn, what one action would you recommend our listeners take to avoid suffering the same fate? Think of that, that person who's got their numbers aligned and they've got it all. It makes sense. You know, increase that rent. What would you tell them? I would say, especially if you're investing out of your backyard and especially if it's for the first time, your due diligence should focus a lot more on the companies and the professionals that you're going to do business with. So you're not going to be present in person. You're not familiar with that market. You're not going to be able to just walk in there and make things right again. So what you really want to do is make sure that you choose the right people to work with. And once you've, you feel confident that you've done that, just listen to them, talk to them, and try to uh, somehow find a way to conglomerate your goals with what that particular environment and the people working in it are suggesting to you. Beautiful. All right. Last question. What's your number one goal for the next 12 months? I think we're going as a business. I mean, personally, things are, are quite good. We're quite happy here. Business-wise, we're going through growing pains. So we've, we've established a very good practice and you know, a lot of loyal customers, and we've been doing a lot of deals, so much so in fact that we're suddenly noticing that we haven't actually prepared for the growth that we're experiencing. So next 12 months are definitely um, going to be all about setting up the infrastructure, automating processes, and just getting things done a lot more smoothly and profitably. Got it. Well, you're doing it in the right order. Get the deals. Yep. <laughs> set up the infrastructure before you get the deals and you may, you may just tank your business. So that's the right order. I think it's a bit of a compromise though. We should have probably prepared for this a bit earlier. Yeah. I think we, we always feel that, you know, I think, God, we should have fixed this earlier. Yeah. But we had 15 other things going on you know, exactly. at that time. So, you know, I was just with my business partner, Dale, for my coffee business last night. And we were just discussing about, you know, our frustration with one area, but then we have to take into consideration which, what we are working on, you know, in another area. So yeah, it's always a balance. It's always yeah. a balance. So. All right, listeners, there you have it. Another story of loss to keep you winning. To find more stories like this, previous episodes and resources to help you reduce your risk, visit myworstinvestmentever.com. As we end, Zib, I want to thank you again for coming on the show. I know it's painful talking about our losers, but our listeners are learning to win as a result. And I want to congratulate you for being one of the brave ones who has turned your worst investment ever into your best teaching moment. Do you have any parting words for the audience? No, thank you very much. And great to have you with us. And I just maybe let people know, I mean, these days, you don't have to, it's a global world out there, right? You don't have to stay in your backyard and what you're familiar with. If the returns or the attractive investments are not there, just explore. The world's your oyster and it's very practical these days. Right on. Well, and we'll also have all the links in the show notes. So if anybody wants to explore property in Japan, you know where to turn. All right. That's a wrap on another great story to help us create, grow, and most importantly, protect our well fellow risk takers. I'll see you on the upside.